welcome to the aggressive life. You know, there's a word that I've kind of stayed away from in our podcast. It's because it's a cult. Actually, I I got sick of hearing about it. I, I was part of the cult for a long, long time. And then I got out of the cult and I just kind of didn't want to talk about it anymore, even though it was still important. And that cult is called leadership. Leadership. Like the number of leadership books I've read, the number of leadership things people talk about. It's good. It's important. It, re- it really is. It really is. But it was like I, for a season of my life, that's all I read. And it was all about. And there was other things that I just needed to be more sensitive to. And I come to a place in my life right now where kind of re-honing my leadership edge is becoming important to me. So we've got a guest today who's going to help us do that. Are you a leader? Do you want to be a leader? Do you know how to be a leader? I'm hoping you're going to be helped today by a friend of mine. His name is Kerry Newhoff. He's got this thing called the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. I don't know if I don't know if you know it or not, but he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. I'm uh, I'm taking notes on him. He's doing amazing things and reaching amazing numbers of people. And the reason why this is part of the aggressive life, I really want to dig in with him today. He's made some aggressive moves. How many people do you know go from being a lawyer? to being a pastor, to being a self-employed podcaster, writer, speaker. Dag, that is aggressive. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie Newhoff. Brian, it's great to be with you, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thanks <laughs> for being here. a fun head. introduction. Well, Boy. I try, you know, I yeah. try. Yeah, you succeed. I, well, just go back to that. Like, seriously, you ever thought about that before? Like, lawyer, pastor, self-starting entrepreneur. Those are those are three pretty pretty significant shifts. Do they feel like that in the moment? Was there any they common do and things? They don't. Yeah. Um, they were all a response. I would say. Well, certainly the first one, like a lawyer to pastor, that was definitely a call. So you know, I grew up in a Christian home, but was kind of raised Presbyterian. So I wouldn't exactly call that charismatic, sort of the opposite of charismatic, <laughs> if, if you know denominations. Yes. But I had a supernatural experience in law school as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old Christian that really convinced me, oh my goodness, I think ministry is my calling, not law. But I worked for a year in law in downtown Toronto as a student, got called to the bar, went to seminary. Yeah, so that that felt like obedience. And then I thought I was going to work at a, a big church in Toronto. That was my goal, right? Like if you're going to climb an office tower, you might as well just climb a big church. But we, we felt, again, supernaturally called to a place an hour north of Toronto with three little tiny churches. That felt like a big leap. I had always been part of a church of 200 people or so. And, you know, one of the churches that I started at had an average attendance of six. So that felt like a really big leap. But we're still here 27 years later. Uh, some of those people in those little tiny churches eventually became part of what became Connexus. And we get to see them on the weekend and we love them. And it's great to be here. And then, yeah, that, that, you know, when I stepped out almost seven years ago, out of the lead pastor role, uh, that was a big risk. Um, But I felt like my season as a lead pastor had come to an end personally, but also for our church, because I could tell the fire in the belly wasn't there like it was a few years earlier. I had seen succession botched over and over again. And I had this writing speaking thing back in 2015 
but it was not generating enough income to put two kids in, you know, university through without some risk. So it was a big jump and a big prayer. And God, would you provide? Because we'd done savings, but like, you know, I have a software engineer and a um, accountant that we raised and those are expensive programs. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to get through debt-free. They, we wanted them to get through debt-free, but you know, God provides. And so he did. And that was six and a half years ago. And I stepped back entirely from the church other than attending, giving, and helping out uh, occasionally. And uh, yeah, it's just become more than I could imagine. But all the risks have, they feel like demotions. Here's, here's the crazy thing. They all feel like demotions. And then God gives you more than you ever imagined. Interesting. Well, let's go back to something else you said. You said you had a supernatural experience. Can you tell us what it is or was? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was 24 years old. I was working at a law firm. So I, I grew up in a Christian home, kind of drifted a bit in my faith in my late teens and in my early 20s, maybe 21 or 22, recommitted my life to Christ. It was like, all right, I'm either getting out of this whole Christian thing or I'm in. And after praying and reading the Bible, it's like, no, nope, I'm, I'm here. So then it was, well, how do I become a Christian lawyer? You know, insert joke here. Can you be a Christian lawyer? What does that look like? But I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a Christian <laughs> as an adult, follow Jesus, I'll do it in law. And I'd wanted to be a law since, lawyer since I was a kid. So I found a really good firm I liked um, in my hometown. And I was working there. It was an afternoon in August. I was 24 years old. And it's around three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just working on a case at... Um, a desk. And I had almost like an out-of-body experience, a daydream. I don't even know what to call it, but I saw a vision of myself 20 years in the future. So I'm not 24 in my vision. I'm 44. And I'm wildly successful at law and morally bankrupt. My marriage is in tatters. My kids hate me. Now, I'm not even engaged at this point, mm. but I just see a vision of myself. And, and I knew the meaning of that vision in that moment was like, law is not for me. So I'm really confused. I, you know, kind of snap back to reality out of the daydream. And I'm like, what does that mean? And I'm praying about it. And I walk into the library that the firm had, had a bay window at the end of the library. It's my hometown. So I'm praying about it, kind of just staring out of the window. And I feel a gravitational pull to look to the right. I look to the right and I can see my home church. But the part of the church I can see is not the front doors. It's the back offices. And I feel a prompting, a voice, not audible, but very real, very discernible that said, you should be in there. Hmm. I'm like, what? I should be in the pastor's office? That's insane. Like never occurred to me on a list of 100 things I was going to do in my life. Didn't even occur to me to be a pastor. So I was dating someone who would eventually become my wife. We were staying at my parents' place that summer. I was going to propose to her that month. Her name's Tony, my wife. And I went to pick her up. She worked at a pharmacy. Picked her up, didn't say a word. We're driving to my parents' house for dinner. And she asked me out of the blue, we've known each other nine months. She's a law student as well. We know each other for nine months. She says to me, out of the blue, have you ever thought of going into ministry? And I'm like, <laughs> you'll never guess what happened to me at the office today. And that started a conversation. I needed like a hundred more signs. God gave me lots of them. Because I just didn't believe it. I don't have the gifting for pastoral leadership. I don't have the wiring for it. I, I don't have any of that. And yet, you know, here we are all these years later and it turned out to be a call. Wow. 
And when you went from the pastorate, because that was kind of a downgrade, someone would say, at least financially, lawyer to pastor world. And then it's also a bit of a downgrade, steady check to eat whatever you kill. That's pretty aggressive. Was there a time that you, when you realized I made it, this move worked? I think that's fascinating how you say every every move feels like a demotion. Every aggressive move initially feels like a demotion. That's really good and scary to hear. But with where you are right now, was there was there a day or an interview or a book deal or another spiritual experience that made you go, huh, this is going to work. I, I, I think it'd be, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, I am fine and I'm really grateful for that, but I don't know that I've ever felt like I've made it. It's weird. Like, I remember, I've always loved books, going into a bookstore and all these authors are strangers, right? You don't know any of them. And then I started doing a bit of speaking maybe 15, 17 years ago. I wrote my first book 12 years ago with a guy named Reggie Joyner. And I remember going into the bookstore to look for it. And I'm like, oh, I know two other people on this shelf. That was really neat. And now, you know, I look at it and I'm interviewing Seth Godin and Simon Sinek and emailing Adam Grant. And I'm like, yeah, I guess these guys are colleagues now. They're, they're certainly people that I know and really like. And it's just weird. It's like, it's like the temperature in, you know, the pool just got a little bit warmer all the time. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't know. I, I hope I have a growth mindset. Like I just met with some of my financial advisors last year and, you know, there's a point where you don't have to work anymore, which is great. But like, I, I want to keep working not for income, but I want to keep working because I really enjoy the work and I really enjoy throwing my life into something better. And I hope I'm curious enough to take another big risk at some point in my life and open enough because God, you know, when you risk, like when I jumped out, we had, you know, it was a hundred thousand dollars for each of the kids education. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm the pastor of a larger church in Canada, but we're not particularly well paid. I would make the same as you know, a police officer with some seniority or a little less than a high school principal. So I'm not making huge bank, but we had saved and we were trying to be frugal with it. And then God just provides. I landed shortly after a book deal with a major publisher and, you know, I, I can be responsible for the work. I can't be responsible for the growth and never in, did it, when I started the podcast, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe one day, We'll get a million downloads, but you might as well have said a bajillion. Well, we're 22, 23 million downloads in, and the snowball is running faster down the hill every year. I think we'll maybe see six or seven million downloads this year alone wow. on the podcast. So wow. I'm like, wow. you know, I can't engineer that kind of growth. I can't claim credit for it. Right. I, I can't. My job was to jump. My job is to do the work. And as Charles Stanley says, trust God for the outcome. And in this case, and you know, maybe he takes it away one day. Okay. He takes it away one day. That's fine. It's, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's fine. That's up to him, not me. How long did it take once you left your pastorate to equal the pay that you were getting at your pastorate? Or have you not done that Well, I kept the teaching role. So it was about a $20,000 a year demotion. But you know, when you're when you're paying attention to every dollar that comes in, that's a significant amount of income loss. And yeah. I would say we didn't notice it. Oh, like wow. God just started awesome. providing. 
There was one, but you know, you can go right back to the very beginning. My wife and I met, we were both law students in Toronto. And I remember we did our first budget and I think we made $3,000 a month at the time because she was a pharmacist first. So she always made, you know, a good paycheck. And I remember tithing saying, okay, we're going to tithe on that. So, you know, that's $300 a month, which was a lot of money. And I remember we came up to maybe our first Christmas and I'm like, honey, we're going to be short. Like we're going to be short. I know we're going to be short. And we bought modest gifts for the people that were close to us and our family. And at the end of the year, the math just didn't add up. And I kind of feel like that is what God has done at all of those critical faith junctures. The math doesn't add up. I remember the first time I started working at a church, I'd left the law firm and they, they'd given me not only a huge pay raise when my year at the law firm, they almost doubled my salary. I'm a good negotiator. And um, then, then they, they offered me a job that would be the equivalent of a starting job at six figures today. And I walked away to go to church. And I remember the church treasurer, he handed me my paycheck and he goes, I'm sorry, this is for the last two weeks. I know this used to be your hourly rate. And it was that kind of a demotion, right? I thought that was a clever line. Yes. And uh, it wasn't quite, but, but his point was well taken. But you know what? We never lacked for anything. And it was tight. But, um, you know, we, we, got, we got an opportunity to serve God at these churches. And we get an opportunity to serve God through what we do now. And he's always taking good care of us. And I have no complaints. Yeah, the resource challenge for leaders is always, always present, right? But vision precedes resources. Like if I was waiting for the money to come in, I don't know whether God would have honored it the same way. And the same, like, like, you know, I left, so I left law to go to a church and I thought I would be in Toronto. There was this plum church right at the 401 and Bayview Avenue that I was attending at the time. And they had offered me a job and they'd given me a career, career path, calling path that I could join for a meaningful amount of money. It would be almost six figures today. And I could be the senior pastor within five years. So I'd be like 32 and be the senior pastor of a prominent church in Toronto. Sounded like a great career path, but I was still poking around to see whether there's anything else there. Else there. Actually, that offer hadn't come in. I'm like, where am I going to be a pastor? I didn't know. So because the church is so small in Canada, they have these things called pastoral like student charges. So it's not that you're doing student ministry. You're not ministering to teens. They just hire students at a fraction of the price that they would underpay hmm. regular clergy at. But I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And then I can preach. I can do that for a few months and see if I can be a pastor. And if I'm a terrible pastor, maybe I'll become a professor. So that was my career path that I thought prayerfully. And um, we tried a few small churches. Nobody was interested. Nobody wanted me. I didn't have the right personality or characteristics. And then we found these little churches up in Oro where I currently live. And I came up here and I did a preach off with one of my best friends in seminary. And uh, I preached one weekend and these were tiny churches, three that we would do the circuit on on Sunday morning, six average attendance at one, 14 at the second church. And where we'd finish at the mega church, there were 23 people. So that's like uh, 46 people all added together. It was tiny. So I preach at these three churches and then my friend Charles preaches the next weekend and then the elders voted. And I thought, um, I wonder who's going to win. I won by one vote. 
And I had told the church in Toronto, hey, by the way, just so you know, I don't know there's a future here, but I'm looking at perhaps going to some small churches north of the city. They came back with a counteroffer that I've already described where, okay, you can come here, good salary, be the senior pastor within five years, we'll keep you here. And my heart was like, oh, I got to stay in Toronto. Those are my people. All the people from the bank towers and the law offices and the finance sector in downtown Toronto went to this church. I'm like, I get those people. I know their world. I understand it. Anyway, um, George, the interim moderator here in Oro, called me. And those churches are like five minutes from where I'm standing right now. I could drive you there today. He called me and he just said, well, Carrie, you won by one vote. And I said, uh, George, I have a terrible dilemma. I don't know what to do, whether it's Toronto or Oro, I don't know. And he goes, oh, why don't you just come up and help us? I'm like, George, I don't know. Give me 24 hours. So I hung up, dejected, because I'm like, oh, now I got to make a decision. And Tony was my wife by this point. And she goes, well, why don't we see what the Bible has to say? And sarcastic me, I'm like, you don't just like open up your Bible and like, <laughs> you know, see what God has Bible to say to roulette. you in the moment. Bible roulette. Exactly. I did just open my Bible, but my mind went to Acts chapter 16. And it was there that Paul was trying to figure out where to go. And then he decided to go to Macedonia. And I knew enough of the Old Testament to know Macedonia was the poor country and Aura was the poor churches. And George had just said to me, why don't you come to Macedonia and help us? And Paul had the vision of the angel in the middle of the night. And the exact words of the angel were, why don't you come to Macedonia and help us? We read that. We cried our eyes out. We prayed. I called George back two minutes later and said, we're coming. That's how I got to where I am now. And we haven't left. So we're still involved at the church. I'm just not leading it. Yeah, that's fantastic. How have you seen at the church or even where you are right now? I mean, your leadership is, I would assume, a bit different. How many people are on payroll with you right now? Well, in my company, we've yeah. got eight of us. And then at the church right now, I think the staff is up to about 15 or 16. So oh. we're a church pre-COVID okay, of like, yeah, I don't know, like 1,500. I don't know what we are right now. Which is I'm massive not close for Canada. It's massive for Canada. It is. It is Canada, probably the top eh? 100 for Canada. Canada, eh? Well, what have you seen that's different about leadership post-COVID? I, I hate to bring up COVID. Like, I'm, I'm so sick of the COVID yeah. conversation. I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm over it. I'm done with it. And yet, it is a reality that I believe that our culture has shifted. Is it permanent? Uh, gosh, I hope not. But I know it feeling pretty darn permanent. It's a different world the last couple years than it was the previous years. In terms of leadership, Carrie, how do leadership skills differ now than before or do they not? What new challenges do we have as leaders now that we didn't have before or are there not new ones? What new skills do we need to learn? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the lay of the leadership landscape as we are right now? I think some of the things that were always important are really important now. Your ability to cast vision, your ability to care for and retain your team, because we are dealing with a great resignation. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's massive. And we're going into year two of it right now. When historians look back on our lifetime, COVID will be a hinge point, mm. more even than the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu was a footnote, but I think COVID accelerated culture 
And people looked around, think about the great resignation. We're all going into our office towers, into our buildings, into our businesses, into our churches. And then we're all locked out. And everybody now for the first time in history in a lockdown is connected. And we're looking around and we all unite. And then it's like, gosh, I can work from home. And employers realized that, but employees realized that. And then they realized, I don't have to live in New York City and pay $3,000 a month for rent. I can leave somewhere else. So we saw this exodus out of cities. We saw people start demanding greater pay. We saw unemployment spike to 20%. And now we've got a zero unemployment economy, a full employment economy. So I think that is a permanent change. And what that means is you you now have to really care for your team. How's your culture? What kind of leadership are you providing? How are you actually caring for the whole person? Uh, We're just moving, for example, as a company, my little company, experimenting with a four-day work week. It's been something I'm thinking about. Now, old Carrie would have said, you need to work seven days a week. New Carrie is like, I care about the whole person. And I think we can get as much or more done in four days than we can in five, particularly with running a remote company the way I do. I think that's changed. I think your ability to pivot quickly has changed. Strategic planning used to be Let's all go off-site for a couple of days. We'll try to figure it out. We'll get a plan together for the year, maybe 18 months, and then we'll execute it. And COVID blew that up, and we were pivoting every 30 days or so. Well, I think you can still do the annual plan, but you then have to reassess your metrics, your strategy in the moment because culture is changing so quickly. And because we're all hyper-connected, you know, one event, whether that's a mass shooting, another pandemic, whether that is... Uh, an election can change the mood overnight or inflation. Look at all the or supply chain issues. Like there's so many external threats beyond our control in an interconnected world that is sort of deglobalizing right now that it means you have to rethink your strategy every 30, 60, 90 days. So I think those are some of the changes that are probably, if they're not permanent, they're here to stay indefinitely. So, it's basically the one what you're saying, the same blocking and tackling that leadership has always been, except there's smaller margin for error, maybe? Yeah, no, I don't know whether there's smaller margin for error. I think you can really mess up, but I think your time frame is compressed. In other words, we're trying some new things. So we um, changed the whole business model of my company back in March. We're recording this in June. We've already done one or two iterations that we're changing. We're not letting it run for a year and then checking in to see how it's it's going. I think you're going to have to do more real-time feedback. I have a couple of restaurateurs I'm pretty close to locally. And they're talking about how it changed from when the mask restrictions were in place to when they were gone to the week after they were gone. Like the business model, I think, is changing regularly. And the ministry model, as you know, is changing regularly. And people are fickle and they're unpredictable. And, you know, we're in this era, too, of what I would call hypertrends. So if you're thinking about home decor, home decor used to last about a decade. Now, something that was really cool two years ago is completely out of style today. And so I think you're always looking for um, changes and you're going to fail faster and you're going to course correct and then you're going to move into the future. So I think it is going to involve, like you and I were talking on my podcast about all the digital experimentation you're doing at Crossroads Church. And a lot of it's been failure, 
But all those failures, you're failing forward. You're you're leading into a okay. We know it's not that, but it might be this, and this is working over here. Oh, and now let's do more of that because it's working over there. I think there'll be more iterations as time goes on. You know, we've had more good staff people leave my day job than ever before. Um, I used to say at Crossroads, well, we've had people leave staff, but really hasn't been a lot of regretted loss. You know, for the last year, we've had a lot of regretted loss. It's been really, really tough. And what I'm realizing is things that internally we weren't that great at, we weren't getting dinged at like we are now. Like, mm. like when you don't have a culture that's having one-on-ones, managers having one-on-ones, and you're not hearing how someone's doing, you're not getting the real-time feedback, it may not hurt you because there's not maybe a lot of other jobs out there. If they are, they're not going to pay more than they could get in this job maybe. Well, now that's not right. the case. Now, if, if you're not on your game with your people knowing how they're doing and hearing what they're frustrated about and trying to fix it, if you're not on your game, they're gone in a month. They, they're, they're, the grass is greener. They can go someplace else. And so what was a weakness for you before you could slide by on, you can't do that now. That's what I'm feeling more and more. I see what you're saying. Yes, so you're right. There is less margin for error. And I think that's true. It's sort of that point that over the last two years, everyone's eyes have opened up and they're like, oh, there's a big world out there and the world wants me. So if I don't like it here, I can try it over there. And even, you know, with a four-day work week, I really care about my existing employees. But that makes it really hard to leave if you're adjusted to a four-day work week and now you're starting a new company that has a five-day work week, right? So there's all these competitive advantages. It's like, well, I was used to having Fridays off. So what do we do about that? And that's not the primary motivation. I actually think that remote work, and that's what I do, and particularly paired with knowledge work, can be a little bit inefficient. And I want us to be more efficient and more effective and that will create more freedom for the team. But we'll see. Maybe it doesn't work. I said, for the summer, it's an experiment. If it fails, it fails. And we'll decide that together. Uh, it's a lot of quality team-based decision-making because people buy into what they are involved in. So rather than me pontificating, rather than me saying, hey, we're going to do a four-hour work week, I'm like, are you guys open? Start with the leadership team. Would you be open to taking a look at this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's discuss it and then let's take it to the team. So that kind of collegial environment is a real shift in leadership I'm seeing as well. Interesting. That's really good. Brother, let's get into some of your content. You cranked out a lot of great content and I just want to at least give people the 30,000 foot view to give them some help and then they can dig deeper if they want. Let's talk about a couple of your books, your best-selling book, At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. People feel overwhelmed. I mean, I, I don't beat anybody virtually who doesn't feel overwhelmed, overcommitted. How does that condition that we find ourselves into, how can you help us with that? Well, I hope I can help. Um, there's a million great time management books out there. But one of the things I learned, I learned all my lessons the hard way, Brian. And about 16 years ago in 2006, I burned out. It was the worst season of my life. It was depressing. I was, I was not in good shape. And on the other side of burnout, I tried to figure out, okay, how do I never go back there? And yet I was responsible for leading a growing church. 
And I didn't have all this other stuff I'm doing now on the side either. And I started paying attention to time management. But the truth is, a lot of people who are burning out are pretty good at time management. And what I had to figure out was, well, what else can I manage? And I started to focus on energy and priority management. So let's just break down energy. We get 24 equal hours in the day, but I think all of us intuitively know that those hours don't feel equal and they don't produce equally. So I started to notice I'm really a morning person. And I kind of knew that all along, but I never treated it um, very seriously. Mm -hmm. I never, you know, I'd go for breakfast meeting, I'd do a bike ride in the morning or whatever. And then I've got this sermon to crank out, or I've got this book to edit or whatever I happen to be working on. And I'd try to squeeze it in later in the day. It almost never worked. I'd take my work home with me, ignore my family, end up working on weekends. And I said, well, what if I paid attention to my energy and I started managing my energy? And so I divided the day into three zones, green, yellow, and red. Green being when you're at your best. You're feeling great. The ideas flow. You're in a good mood. Red being when you're dragging, when you're really tired. And then yellow being everything in between. So for me, my green zone is from about 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. I canceled all my breakfast meetings. I don't do them anymore. And now I write. And so the reason I can produce a lot of content is Mm. I protected my mornings And I have time to think, time to pray, time to reflect, time to write. And I do that between 7 and 11. And then my red zone is 4 to 6. So I'm making an exception for you today in doing an interview. But normally, I mean... shucks. I feel so good about myself. Thank you. You're welcome. But you're not getting my best, right? People are like, (laughs) can I get a discount? It's like, it's free. So no discount. But, you know, I think the best thing when you're tired, you can sit there and try to empty your inbox and you're exhausted and it takes you an hour to get through 10 emails or take a nap or do a workout or do whatever. And then your yellow zone can be very productive. So the key is to find out when you're at your best and then do what you're best at. So the one thing, and and our mutual friend, Todd Wilson from Exponential helped me see this a few years ago. What connects? I was a DJ as a teenager at a radio station, law, you know, ministry. And now what I'm doing, what is a common thread through all of those? Communication. It's communication. I'm a communicator. Mm. What is the gift I think God probably gave me? Communication. So if I can do my content creation, my communication in the morning, and I do my interviews in the afternoon in my yellow zone, but I do the prep for my podcast in my green zone in the morning, because if I'm well-prepared, I'm going to have a great interview. Now, I don't want to interview in my red zone as a rule, but if I can do all of my heavy lifting in the morning, I can produce a lot better quality material, and I can produce a lot more of it, and I'm actually energized by it. So that's the whole idea of managing your energy in a nutshell. What do you do to prepare for an interview on a podcast that I might not be doing? Which hmm. is probably anything because I pretty much do nothing. Well, it depends who it this. is. Dirt does I mean, stuff. I don't. So go ahead. Help me, uh, help me get better. It's changed over the years. So it depends who I'm interviewing. If it's somebody I know or I've spent time with personally, um, I get, start here. Start here. Why do I want this guest on the podcast? And I'm getting more discerning about who comes on the podcast because we get pitched 15 to 20 times a day, mm. according to my team. Yeah. And, you know, you hit a certain number of downloads and, and that's what happens. Yep. So, you know, I'm like, what do I want? And what I wanted from you was I wanted to find out, we ended up getting into personal journey, which was great. That was bonus material. I wanted to find out the evolution of a journey of a guy who's led a mega church for 25 years 
and I wanted to get into online innovation, both of which we covered, but you gave a lot of other bonus material. And we had spent a little bit of time together at an event a few months ago. So I kind of had an idea on the questioning. I had a look at your latest book. I went on your website. I looked at the timeline and chronology. I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready for that interview. That maybe took me half an hour or 45 minutes. The first time I interviewed Seth Godin, I probably spent three days preparing for that interview. I read so much of his books and I had read them before, but I reviewed them. I listened to him being interviewed on other podcasts because Seth Godin doesn't give away his time very easily. Or Simon Sinek. You know, I really, really did a lot of prep for some of those interviews because they've got a platform that is much bigger than mine. And I'm very fortunate to have them on my show. But then what happens eventually is, you know, Seth Godin talks to Ramit Sethi, who talks to Adam Grant, who talks to other people. And it becomes, you sort of move into that world, but I really want to be prepped for those interviews. And I think you honor the guest when you really do the background, like you did, right? You knew my last two books, you had them in your notes. You're asking me questions about them and we don't need to dwell on them all day long, but it really helps if it's like some interviewer who's like, hey, Carrie, so what do you do? And they haven't done their homework. That's probably not a best use of the guest time, but I think it varies from guest to guest. And part of me just gets to that point. Like, Brian, how do you know when a sermon is finished? You just know. Yeah, eventually you know. How do I know I've got the right questions? I kind of look over them and I'm like, yep, that's what I want to pull out of the guest for my audience. And if I can deliver on that, I'm happy. Now you sometimes get often get a lot of bonus material. It's like, oh, he said this. What did he mean by that? Better ask that question. Not on the list. But then you go down rabbit trails and that's fun. I've heard you talk a number of times about the time management, which is, you're, you're really wise to stay away from that phrase because we're all just sick of hearing that phrase and it feels oppressive. And uh, I mean, you use it, but that's, you're not, you're not leading with that. I've heard you mm-hmm. talk a number of times about, you know, time, energy priorities. And um, I, th- I think this summer, it's one of the books I'm actually, I've heard you talk about it, but I'm going to actually spend some personal time reading that book. I think that I might've, I'm, I'm probably getting sloppy with how I'm organizing my my life. I wouldn't even say my time, just my life. You know, I think I've gotten to a place where you have enough some success, you've got some wins, you've been around for a while so you don't feel like you're you know, you're totally a greenhorn. And um, there's b- bad habits that have popped in. There's things that could be happening that probably aren't happening. I think your book's going to help me on that. So I, I get sloppy with my own life. I wrote the book and I put in somewhere at the back. It's like, please review this every three to six months. Because what I find is everything changes, right? So the podcast grew, or we had this crisis over here, or the business model of the company is changing or something, and or the quality and quantity of requests that are coming my way are changing. And so about every three to six months, I reevaluate everything and I redo my schedule. And part of moving to a four-hour work week, I mean, we are literally two weeks into this, so check with me in a few months, but my mornings are way more efficient. I was noticing that my morning routine was dragging. I usually get up around five and it would be seven or 7.30 before I was really done. I'm like, well, I didn't pray for two hours. I did pray. I didn't read the Bible for two hours. So what was I really doing? And now I've kind of, by compressing the work week, I've cracked the whip a little bit more. I'm actually enjoying my mornings more. I'm getting way more done and it feels better. 
So I think you need to disrupt yourself from time to time and review and, and say, okay, what is changing in the company? What's changing in the church? Uh, what's changing in me? And what do I need to that, do? So I think that's a super healthy exercise. Boy, that's a really good word, disrupt. I like that because I found in sermon preparation, every couple few years, I've got to disrupt my preparation uh, my mm-hmm. prepar- not just how I prepare, but what I'm taking up on stage from my notes. So wow. about, you know, I've gone mind maps, scripts, uh, note cards. Right now what I'm doing is I'm just doing Bible and notes on the Bible. That That's all I'm doing on that. And it's, I don't, I'm not ever saying this is the best way to do it, but I, I need disrupted. So that's a really good word. I, I think I need disrupted as well in the whole time management. Well, I get bored and I get lazy. Right. You know, like, it's like, oh, I've done this for the same way for five years. And then, you know, what is it? The second law of entropy, things gradually (laughs) come undone. They don't get better over time automatically. So yeah, I think you have to disrupt yourself. Or if you find yourself, one of my favorite words is malaise. Like if you find yourself in a bit of malaise, it's like not bad. It's not great. It's just kind of, this is probably time to disrupt yourself. And I have to do that a couple times a year. Okay, give us some bank shots on your book, Didn't See It Coming, Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. What a great title. Hmm. Well, these were the things that I just never expected as a leader. So it's sort of seven mini books. Uh, There's sections on cynicism and pride and moral compromise, like character um, and irrelevance. And It was like, I was prepared for the hard journey of leadership, like learning how to lead a board meeting, learning how to rally people around a vision. What I wasn't prepared for was that by the age of 40, I would have grown from being a pure optimist to being a cynic. Hmm. That really surprised me. Yeah, Uh, Burnout is a whole section. I didn't see that coming. It's like, what are the things? And you're, you're, you know, similar stage in your leadership. You've had to navigate a lot of personal frontiers to get healthy and stay healthy in leadership, Brian. And I had to do the same thing. So didn't see it coming was all about, well, as you get older, you're going to be more cynical. How do you avoid that? And then I have an antidote to all of those challenges. So the antidote to cynicism is curiosity. I've never met a cynical person who's curious. And I've never, never really met a truly curious person who's cynical. I remember I watched this PBS special years ago and it was a professor. He had like literally the tweed jacket and the bow tie and he's probably 80 years old and he's doing some presidential history or something. And he's being interviewed. He's 80. And he says, you know, well, one of the theories I'm exploring right now, and I'm sitting there going, theory you're exploring right now, you're 80 years old. Why are you exploring a theory? And I thought, well, that's the key to longevity. Like, that's amazing. I want to be curious when I'm 80, not just when I'm 20. Dude, you're ringing my bell. I had read or I had circled these seven ones that you had, you know, the seven mini chapters. And I was like, yeah, I think the one that I'm probably most in peril of is cynicism. And gosh, you, you nailed it. I mean, I'm trying not to be cynical of others, but I know when others are cynical towards me. I know they're not going, hmm, I'm just curious though why you did make that decision. <laughs> yeah, no, they already know. know. Of course they know. So I did a little bit of a study on cynicism and it's fascinating. I hope to explode that into an entire book one day because I ask people like, what's your go-to book on cynicism? 
Do you have one, Brian? Uh, no. No, nobody does. Nobody has a go-to book on cynicism unless it's some history book on the cynics they read from the first century. But cynicism, and the Bible tells us this, roots itself in knowledge. Why are you so happy when you're young? Because you were stupid. You didn't know anything, right? <laughs> it's like, you're a happy kid. It's like, everybody's wonderful and life is great and everything's going to come my way. And then you get cut from the team and then your girlfriend breaks up with you and then your parents disappoint you. And then, you know, you don't get into the college of your dreams and then people leave your church. And when you're planting the church, it's going to be amazing. Best church ever. And then people start leaving and people start criticizing you. And so Solomon says, I think it's in Ecclesiastes chapter one, uh, the greater my knowledge, the greater my sorrow. With much wisdom comes much grief. And he's right. The more you know. Here's the most knowledgeable man of his day, one of the wisest men who ever lived. And he's like, I love Ecclesiastes because it's basically, and I'm miserable. Mm. I've seen it all. I've seen everything under the sun and I'm miserable. I married seven, what is it? 300 women and 700 concubines. And I'm a mess. And he's just cynical. And so I really, I found myself getting very cynical in my thirties because as our church grew and people came and people went, you kind of saw human nature. There's a really bizarre verse in John chapter two, I'm looking forward to preaching on where it's early in Jesus ministry and he sees the people around him, but then John notes, but Jesus didn't trust them for he knew the human condition. Like, wow. Now he didn't trust us, but he died for us. Now that'll preach. Like, so he goes on to die for us, but he says, I can't trust you. And we end up in that situation where, you know, the older you get and age and cynicism are frequent companions. And I don't want to be Tony Morgan or, or, you know, Tony Morgan, Tony once said to me, he says, I go to coffee and there's this old man's club at my coffee shop. And it's all these 70-year-olds who sit around and talk about everything that's wrong with the world and how they can make it better. And he goes, if I'm not careful, I'm going to go there. And I'm like, yeah, if I'm not careful, I'm going to go there. And so I thought, well, what really is the antidote? It's curiosity. It's like, if I can stay curious, if I can, if I can be that guy who just asks more questions and takes more notes and be curious and be genuinely interested, like at 57, I'm asking myself, why do birds sing? Um, what kind of bird is that? Oh, can I learn to identify bird calls? Little things like that to, I'm going to read a, a book from an atheist and try to see what they have to say. Now, I don't want to do that to become an atheist, but I want to, these are people I'm trying to reach. I want to understand their mindset. I'm going to read something from the left. I'm going to read something from the right. I'm going to try to figure out, um, you know, I'm going to interview really interesting people and see what they, what I can learn from them, not what I can prove to them, but what can I learn from them? And so hopefully that keeps me curious and the curiosity keeps me open. And I hope I can ride that out for the rest of my days. You write that book. I'll read it. That's, sh- and that should be a bestseller, by the way, you write that book. Mm. I'll work with you to get, because that is gosh, the scourge of our time. Carrie, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? No, I think that's great. I would, I would just say to leaders, you know, be open. It is a very dark time. I was talking to a 30 year old today and he said, you know, I feel like going to live in a cabin in the woods. I get it. There's a lot to disparage over, but we have the gospel and we have Jesus. And, you know, I think it's going to require leadership. And when the chips are down, I was, I was reading some Winston Churchill quotes this week. And, you know, when, when Hitler was rolling over Europe 
things were very dark, probably much darker than they are today. And he became prime minister of England. And he said, this could be our finest hour. And it was for England. And it can be for us, church leader, business leader, wherever you happen to be, um, hold close to your faith, um, keep going at it day after day. I have to remind myself sometimes too, and try to make a difference, you know, have a mission. My mission is to help people thrive in life and leadership. So that's what I wake up every day. That's the mountain we're climbing. That's the problem we're trying to solve. And you should have a problem like that, that you're trying to solve too. And if you do that and enough of us do it, we're going to have a better world. Carrie, where can people get more of your stuff and follow up with you? Yeah, I have a very easy name, Carrie Newhoff. Kidding. CarrieNewhoff.com uh, <laughs> or it's C A R E Y and then N I E U W H O F. If you're Dutch, you know how to spell it. Everybody else is confused. And Carrie uh, Newhoff Leadership Podcast, CarrieNewhoff.com. You can find us there. Brother, I had a great time with you today on your podcast and you on mine. Thanks for uh, thanks for bringing me into your massively expanding orbit. I'm a fan of yours, and uh, thanks for helping all of us get aggressive. Hey, Kerry just talked about some good stuff here. He talked about because he talked about, but that isn't the same as you doing. You've got to actually do something. What is it going to be? You're going to read one of those books. You're going to reorganize your day. You're going to repent of cynicism. Do something. It's called the aggressive life, not the interesting thoughts life. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating? Leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.